So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6. We've been doing a series on prayer uh, Sunday evenings. We've talked about different kinds of prayer. Wes even performed the most miraculous A to Z types of prayer, ways to pray. That one night um, we've looked at the reasons to pray. We've just tackled this subject really well without hopefully... uh, wearing everybody out. I'm hoping everybody's encouraged. And so we're going to wrap this up tonight. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 6. And this is the story, one of the stories of Elisha. Elisha was the fellow who uh, took over for Elijah. He watched Elijah taken up in chariots of fire. Remember that, that'll come up actually in what we're going to read here. And um, he continued Elijah's ministry. That's what he was doing. He was His calling was to continue Elijah's ministry of the word in a realm that revolted against the word, okay, and so many different levels. And so we're going to read starting at verse 11 all the way to verse 23. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. 2 Kings 6, starting at verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. The fact that every time the king wanted, the king of Syria wanted to attack the king of Israel, his plans were known by Elisha, who then told the king of Israel, and then he would avoid the combat and so forth. And so the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he, Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. So Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so Yahweh opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we have spent most of three months talking about prayer. Now, what would you have us to do but pray and become a praying people? Therefore, stir us up toward that end. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. I love this story for several reasons, and I'll give you the, the, the one that actually fits our series here. But I love that statement, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That comes to mind often. And so in our Old Testament reading, it's Elisha's prayers that shock us. While his servant is panicky about this military unit that is surrounding the city. Notice how panicky he is. He says, alas, my master, what shall we do? His servant, Elisha's servant, is panicky because he's walking by sight, not by faith. And all he sees is this this military unit, probably bigger than a... uh, uh, maybe a battalion-sized commando unit or something like that. He sees him and he looks and he goes, wow, we're outgunned and we're outnumbered and we're outmanned. Ah, what do we do? And so he's panicky uh, about this military unit surrounding the city to attack and to extract the prophet. He knows why they're there. And so the man of God says, Elisha says to him, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But then clothed with faith, And confidence in the Lord, Elisha surprisingly prays. He prays for his servant. Oh, Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. And so Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. So he saw more than what the visual, physical eye could see. When God opened his eyes, he saw chariots of fire, which should make your minds go back to Elijah you know that this is God's army surrounding Elisha. And that's what he comes to see. But Elisha prayed for him to see these things. And then again, notice what Elisha does. He prays for the invaders. He doesn't pray for them to be crushed. Notice what he prays. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Something like Paul, you may remember when Paul was speaking in Acts 13 to Sergius Paulus, and there was the Jewish magician Elamus, who was counteracting everything Paul said, and so Paul prays that that Elamus would be blind, and he becomes blind, and he bumps around everywhere. It actually impresses Sergius Paulus. So in a similar way, he prays for this attacking army, they would be blinded. It's not that they can't see it's, it's, a, it's a blindness of confusion. They don't know who they are or where they are or what they're after. So he's able to walk up to them and say, the man you're seeking is not here. Come with me. I'll show you where he is. And they just go, oh, yeah, great. You know, and off they go, right? But then notice once more, after the Syrian commandos are safely inside the clutches of the king of Israel, Elisha prays a third time and the wording is almost identical for what he prayed for his servant when he prayed for his servant oh lord um, please open his eyes that he may see now he prays almost identically for these the syrian commandos and so he says oh lord open the eyes of these men that they may see and so the lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold they were in the midst of samaria now that's a great story i love the story because can you imagine being those commandos that once your eyes are open, you go, how did we get here? Oh, no, we're burnt toast, right? I mean, it's done. 
And so notice that instead of worrying about everything, complaining without end, Elisha prays. He prays three times and his prayers impact three groups. His prayers impact, first off, his servant and his servant's safety and sanity. His prayer impacts his servant's safety and sanity. Open his eyes and he'll see and he sees. Secondly, his prayer impacts Israel. Israel is an outright rebellion against God. And so Elisha's prayer impacts Israel with undeserved security. Did you hear that? They're in revolt. And so Elisha's prayers actually give them undeserved security. The third group that's impacted by Elisha's prayers, of course, are the Syrians themselves, the invaders. And how it impacts them is it gives them unlooked for shelter and hospitality. They're now inside Samaria. The gates are closed. They are at the, they are at the, uh, at the whim of the king of Israel. And instead of their demise, they get food and drink and they go home. Right? So it, it actually impacts the invaders, giving them unlooked for shelter and hospitality. So, my friends, just one last reason to encourage us in prayers. You think about Elisha praying and the impact it had on those three groups and the value and the importance of it. And so this whole series, for all these weeks we've been doing this, this whole series I've been hoping for and praying would fuel and ignite your desire and your drive to pray. It's been the whole purpose of the whole series. And so at the beginning of this series, several weeks ago, I passed out to you a very important paper uh, on prayer by David Wells. You may or may not remember it. It was titled, Prayer, Rebelling Against the Status Quo. He wrote it in 1979. He says this in that article, quote, Our praying, therefore, should look beyond the concerns of our private lives to include the wide horizon of all human life in which God is concerned. If the gospel is universal, and it is universal in its scope and in how it goes out, if the gospel is universal, prayer cannot be restricted to being local. I appreciate what David Wells is saying. Our prayer should be as big and as universal as the gospel, cannot be restricted to the local self. And so it needs to include the wide horizon of all human life in which God is concerned. Is God concerned about the 2024 elections? Yes. Is God concerned about tax season coming up soon? Yes. Is God concerned that things may be missing from our shelves in the grocery store? Yes. And it doesn't just impact us, it impacts many others. So all the things that God is concerned about, those should be included in our prayer. So I appreciate David Wells' statement. And so throw out your prayer, your prayer net to encompass more than just yourself. When we were stationed in Florida, I I tried to pick up net fishing. Anybody ever done net fishing? It was a round net. It had weights out on the end, and it had ropes that went through the center out to the ends. And the idea was, when you see a school of fish, you take it, and I couldn't do it, so trust me. I'm not even going to try to show you, right? But basically, you try to sling the net out over the school of fish, and then you pull the rope in in the middle, and it scoops them up, almost like an old seine. Anybody ever do seining? You used to seine for minnows? Scoops them up in the middle, right? So think about your praying being the same thing, a net. Throw your prayer net out to encompass more than just yourself. Further, 
D.A. Carson in his book, and I'm going to quote him again in a minute, in his book uh, called A Spiritual Reformation that I've recommended numerous times, reminds us that though rapid prayers, rapid prayers, in the moment prayers, instantaneous prayers are okay and they're biblical, yet in the Western world, we often need to pray until we pray. We often need to pray until we pray. We need to bring prayer to a slow boil. Now, Moose should like that, right? Because he likes to cook pasta, right? You need to bring it to a slow boil. Yeah, that's right. So we need to bring our prayer often to a slow boil, giving prayer time. And so he writes, and you may remember this because I told you I used to be this little boy. He writes that in the Western world, we desperately need this advice for many of us in our praying are like the nasty little boys who ring the front doorbells and then run away before anyone answers. Did anybody ever play that? I used to do that. Knock on the doors and then you run off, right? Very often we throw our prayers out and then we run off and we say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Instead, we need to spend time praying until we pray, right? Bringing it to a slow boil. So be patient in prayer and follow the urgings of the Spirit when He prods you to slow boil your praying. So, dear friends, we, we are being repeatedly guided to pray and encouraged to pray, and we're being invited to pray, and so God is beckoning us to draw near as children to a Father who is able and ready to help us, says the Catechism. So first, let's, we need to talk about let's pray. This is how we're going to end. Let's pray. And so let's, let's pray as a praying person. Here's your first point. Let's pray as a praying person. I want you to remember our Lord Jesus was a praying person. Okay? I mean, you saw it when we looked at Luke 11, verse 1. Jesus was praying. When he was done praying, the disciples asked him at that point, teach us to pray. He was a praying person. But when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, what do you see our Lord Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you see him stewing? Do you see him worrying? Do you see him pacing around and going, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. What do you see our Lord Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane as the sin and the weight of the world and judgment is upon his shoulders? What do you see him doing? Praying. And when he's on the cross, what do you see our Lord Jesus doing on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What do you see our Lord Jesus doing on the cross? Praying. Our Lord was a praying person. Our Lord is still a praying person. We sang that in one of the hymns that He continues to intercede for us. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8, but Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that we will be saved to the uttermost since He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is a praying person now. And so that invites us, the gospel invites us to join in and to draw in with Jesus to be praying people, praying persons. Does that make sense? Even the Apostle Paul was a praying person. You can't miss it all the way through his letters. There are prayers, our call to worship. If you go back and read it, it's one of his prayers for the church at Colossae. He prays several times for the Thessalonians and he writes the prayers in there. So he was a praying person. He prayed often. Elisha was a praying person. Scripture is constantly encouraging us to be, to be praying persons. Okay? So instead of waiting around until others gather around and motivate us, let's take the personal plunge and dive into times and seasons of prayer personally. 
It doesn't usually need to be elaborate and elongated. For example, pray as you, on your drive to work or to the store. Pray. Spend a little time praying. You got moments? Go for it. Pray when you go to the doctor's office. You know what I'm talking about? So not only are you in the waiting room for 30 minutes after you were supposed to be there, you know what I'm saying? Then you get to the exam room. How long do you usually sit in the exam room before the doctor shows up? 30, 45 minutes, right? Guess what? The doctor just blessed you with time to pray. Instead, what do we normally do? That doctor, I can't believe my time is precious. He gave us an opportunity to pray. Take the time there. Spend some time praying while you're in the doctor's office. Or when you have downtime at work, take those moments and spend some time. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be glorious and laborious. Just take some time and pray. Um, especially set up a routine time of prayer for every day. Now, you can do that. Every one, almost every one of you, I imagine every one of you, wakes up in the morning, whether you know it right now or not, and you probably already have a day planner in your head. It may not be a real intense one, but it may be like three things. Drink coffee, take shower, do groceries. you got a planner in your head already. So you just add to that a little time with Jesus. Right? A little time in prayer. Just add it in there. It doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be hours. doesn't even have to be half an hour. But make it a regular portion of your day. And if you, set, if you actually put it in that little planner in your head, it'll begin to be easier to happen. The longer you do it, the more it happens. Does that make sense? Okay. So make a, put, set aside a routine time of prayer every day. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be labored but a time of focused delight and deliberation. Don't do the routine time because you have to. Do the routine time because you want to. I get to be with Jesus a little bit. Are you picking that up? That's huge. Our problem is that we often take it as a duty and we hack and grind. Take it as a delight. The Lord wants you to be with him. Wow. So let me make out a little time to go be with him. Okay? Make it, a, make it a, a focused delight and deliberation. Because prayer is what God's children do. Again, in the words of D.A. Carson in his book, called the Spiritual Reformation, effective prayer is the fruit of a relationship with God. Effective prayer is the fruit of a relationship with God, not a technique for acquiring blessings. So a lot of people need to hear that. It's, a, it's the fruit of a relationship with God, not a technique to, require, to acquire blessings, relationship. So be a praying person. Let's pray by being a praying person. But secondly, let's pray by being praying parents, praying parents. Walk back through Hannah. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter two, chapter 1 and 2. And you will notice before Hannah became a, a parent, she was a praying woman. And then after she became a parent, you find her in, in 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 10. A praying woman. She was a praying parent. As E.M. Bounds, and I quoted this for you before, I'm going to do it again. E.M. Bounds said this about Hannah. Quote, praying women whose prayers like those of Hannah can give to the cause of God men like Samuel do more for the church and the world than all the politicians on earth. And he wrote that like in 1913. <laughs> what a great statement. Be praying parents. 
Maybe if you need more motivation, take a stroll right along with Augustine's teary-eyed mother, Monica, who wept and prayed and went to the church building. She went to the church building to do it. She wept and prayed for days on end, and then she was encouraged by the pastor. It is not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. Let Monica be an encouragement to you. But also, maybe you've never been a parent, or maybe now you're true, thorough, empty nester, and there's no kids ever at home. My friends, you are still mothers and fathers in the church. Listen to me. You are still mothers and fathers in the church. Those kids look at you, look up to you. We make vows as a congregation when we do children's baptisms and stuff, right? You are still mothers and fathers in the church. So guess what? Be praying parents. Praying for the kids in our church. We did it this morning as part of our congregational prayer. How many of these kids in this church need our prayers? Okay, thank you. Be praying parents. Okay? And so let's pray by being praying parents. Second, uh, thirdly, let's pray by being a praying parish. A praying parish. A parish, that's an old term for more than just a church building. It actually used to be the physical boundaries that a church was in. So this was uh, the parish boundaries might be, you know, 800 acres for this church. And so no other church could come poach in this parish and all that stuff. But in our day, we've started using it more and more for a church. And I'm just trying to stay with the peace. Okay, you got it? So be a praying parish. I love Acts 12. We read it. We looked at it a while back. I love Acts 12. There the church was gathered in Mary's house to pray for Peter, who was in prison and who was most likely going to lose his head. He was about to get killed. And they prayed for him. And it's a most humorous story. And I love reading it just to know that I'm not the only one who lacks faith, right? They're praying for Peter to be delivered. And when Peter Peter shows up to the house, do they believe that it's Peter? No. Yes, we have soulmates, right? Okay, so I love that story. So it's just delightful. Be a praying parish. Remember what Leonard Ravenhill said. I quoted this uh, several weeks back. The church that prays will be a prevailing church. The church that prays will be a prevailing church. A praying parish uh, is one that prevails, one that still continues, okay? So let's be a praying parish, one that prevails. And again, as I mentioned, as I closed out last time we met with a quotation from a PCA pastor named Christopher Hutchinson in his book on humility, he said this, A church that does not pray much does not sense its need for God's grace much. A church that does not pray much does not sense its need for God's grace much. We need God's grace. I mean, think about it. What do we need more of? And this is a serious question. What do we need more of? Well, obviously, isn't it God himself? We don't need to have a better God. We just need to have God better, right? So there's a sense of that, right? But what else? If we have a sense of our need for God's grace as a congregation, what would be things that we should pray for, for us? Well, I've got four suggestions. Thanks for asking. Number one, we need more people. Let's just be honest. We need more people. Now, you could say this just about any church you go to. We need more older people. We need more younger people. We need more single people. We need more married people. 
We need more teens. We need more 20s. We need more senior citizens. We need more parents. Not so that we become a megachurch. I have no desire to be a megachurch. I'd rather plant more churches, right? But we need more. There's lots of things that need to be done for us to continue the mission that God has given us to do. We need more people. Secondly, we need help with the people we have. We need help with the people we do have. Think about it. We have aging people. Right? We have some aging. Think about Scranton. We need people to help drive. We have, you know, Phil needs our encouragement. Greg Swafford needs our encouragement. We have aging people. We need people to help us. We we have young people. We need help with the young people. We have wayward people. We have disoriented people. We have all kinds of people. We need help with the people that we do have. Thirdly, we need to be a church that is a shelter and a refuge for those coming in out of the storm. I'm not saying that we're not, but we need help in that area. We need to be an abode where foreigners who are looking for a safe place as they establish their lives in this country can feel safe, right? We, we need help by God's grace in those areas. Or fourthly, we need to be a congregation who is being and bringing the gospel to neighbors and ne'er-do-wells. We need to be, continue to be that kind of church. We need help being that kind of church. It's not an easy, natural task. We need God's grace to help us to continue to be those things. I mean, think about it. Today, we baptized Rachel. Was that awesome? And you remember, what did Wes say? We need to pray for 12 baptisms in this church. One down, 11 more to go. Pray for 11 more, right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, we need to do that. And Rachel will probably go off to college and go on, but we, we get to be part of her Christian formation. Praise the Lord. We need more of that. Does that make sense? Being a praying parish. And so we're a church that needs God's aid at so many levels, not for our fame, not for our future, not for our fortune, but simply to be what God wants us to be. Thinking of the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians that Wes read, to be what God wants us to be in our work of faith, in our labor of love, and in our steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. Yes, be a praying parish. Let's pray by being a praying parish. And lastly, let's pray by being involved in praying partnerships. Now notice, if you go back and look at what Wes was reading in 1 Thessalonians, you will notice that Paul begins that letter to the Thessalonian Christians pointing out the praying partnership he was a part of as they prayed and stood up on the Thessalonians' side. They, they stood up for the Thessalonians at God's throne. It was three. It was Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They prayed in a praying partnership. In fact, that's the language Paul uses. We give thanks, mentioning you in our prayers. For we know, beloved, etc. He was in a praying partnership. We need to be in praying partnerships. Pastor Wes and I get together once a month in a praying partnership. We get together with pastors. We just did it this last Wednesday with pastors from other denominations that are fairly conservative, very conservative, evangelical. And we get together, we pray for each other. We pray for each other's families. We pray for, and there's a lot of heartbreak in some of these families. And we pray for each other's churches. We pray for each other's concerns. We pray for each other. It's a praying partnership, and it's a delightful fellowship. been doing it for probably eight years now, and it's great, and it's encouraging, right? 
be a, let's pray by being part of a praying partnership. There are times when Wes and I have partnered together to pray about issues that deeply concern us. If you ever come in the middle of the day and you happen to see Wes and I on the hill back at the back of the church back there, leave us alone. We're praying. We're just back there praying. That's what we're doing. We just walk up there. Nobody really sees us. And we're just joining together. Wes has joined in and prayed as we prayed for our oldest daughter and her situation. He's heard me cry. You know, that praying partnership is extremely important. There are times, my friends, also when our deacons and our elders get together and pray in partnership. We do it every month. Every time we get together as as deacons and elders, we spend a concerted, and it's intentional, we spend a concerted part of our meeting praying for you, praying for people in our congregation, praying about what's happening here. It's a praying partnership. It's really helpful. It's beneficial. It's encouraging. I have a friend who's a United Methodist minister, but... He's, uh, the joke is, is that he got up on the table one day in his uh, parish meeting and said, with his shoe hitting the table, I'm the voice of orthodoxy here. You know, it was pretty funny. But anyways, my friend Paul, he and I have been in a praying partnership for 16 years. Call each other on the phone. His wife had cancer. Um, when we were on sabbatical, called us. When we were on sabbatical, when the first report of her cancer came in, and he said, please, let's pray. You know, praying partnerships. So praying partnerships are important. Let's pray by being part of praying partnerships. And so my friends, those are the four points. But if you're looking for some extra motivations, I have two. Three, actually. Try these on for size. First off, Bernard of Clairvaux, a middle, uh, middle, medieval scholar and, and uh, monk, whom John Calvin, oddly enough, seemed to enjoy quoting in his institutes. Bernard of Clairvaux is reported to have said this, quote, Satan's temptations are grievous to us, but our prayers are more grievous to him. And so, my friends, if there's no other reason that rings your bell, if for no other reason, let's pray to grieve the evil one. Secondly, John Owen wrote one time, quote, He that would be little in temptation... He that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. If for no other reason then, let's pray and put temptation to flight. Let's pray. Thirdly, I mentioned this several weeks back, almost at the very beginning, the story by T.M. Moore, where he was talking with that woman in deep depression. I told you I would never do what he does here, but I, I love his analysis at the end. He was talking to this woman in deep depression, and he asked her if she had thanked God for the depression. Do you remember this story? He asked, he said, have you ever thanked God for that depression? And she replied, that's abnormal. And his observation was this. Precisely, it's normal for us to worry about everything, pray about nothing, and complain without ceasing. That's what's normal for us. And so being praying persons, being involved in praying, is abnormal. So I want to ask you, this is where we're most challenged. I want to ask you, what so distresses you that you should actually be praying instead of being worried, instead of being prayerless, instead of complaining ceaselessly? What distresses you so much that you should be praying? Your children? Your adult children? Our denomination? The larger national concerns? 
our need for rain and our concern about drought, the growing fame and success of LGBTQI plus whatever other letters go in there, the social tsunami. I had a ruling elder back in Midland who said one time to me, he says, Pastor, he says, I feel like we're in a social tsunami. You know, is it the social tsunamis? World wars? The stress that Vlad might actually go crazy and push that button? And mutual assured destruction breaks out or whatever. The elections. The end of the world as we know it. What is it that so distresses you that you should be praying instead of running around worrying about everything prayerless and complaining without ceasing? What is it that so distresses you you should be praying? So what will it take for us to deeply desire to surrender our complaining without ceasing, to relinquish our worries and become prayerful people, to become prayerful parents, to become a prayerful parish, to become intentionally, uh, to be involved intentionally in praying partnerships. What will it take? And so let me end with William Cooper. Right? I love this line. It's been on, it's on the little flyer that we put out for this whole series. We've been quoting it through the whole series, and we're going to end with it. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Let's pray. Well, God, thank you so much that you beckon us, you welcome us, you call to us to come and spend time with you, to pray, to converse with you, to commune with you, to lay our burdens down with you, to disburden our hearts into your bosom. Lord, forgive us for the fact that we often revolt against that. The normal things we do is worry about everything, pray about nothing, and complain endlessly. Dear God, forgive us for Christ's sake. Help us to be, help us to be deeply prayerful. To join with our Lord Jesus, who was truly and is even now a praying person. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.